Hello everybody, what's up? You're listening to I Was Just Wondering with me, Tom Salmon. The show that dives into music, film and games and everything else in between. My guest on this week's show is Colin West, who wrote, directed and produced his latest short film, Here and Beyond. We jumped into Colin's film festival experience, how he got into filmmaking via an email from Oscar-winning director Darren Aronofsky, working with the screen legend Stacey Keach, and the future of streaming services. So, if you're running, stuck in a traffic jam, or sitting behind a desk at work, I hope you enjoy my interview with Colin. So, you're on the short film festival circuit with your latest film, Here and Beyond. How's it going so far? It's going really well. I'm having a great time. It's been... Um... It's been a really fun journey with this one. It's just sort of, it's building exponentially. I mean, I feel like more and more festivals are starting to reach out. And so it's, it's been really great. It's been sort of a, it's a nice building of a community, I suppose. Have you been to Cinequest? Was that this month? Cinequest was a little earlier this month. Um, we just screened in Miami at the Miami Science Fiction Festival this month as well. Previously, we've screened at a few now so far. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, New Filmmakers LA, we screened at Otherworlds Austin, which was a really fun one, out in Boston at the Boston Sci-Fi Film Fest, which is mm-hmm. like one of the longer-running film, uh, sci-fi film fests there, which was that was a lot of fun. The folks out there are, are great. And uh, yeah, and coming up, we're screening at the Columbus Film Festival in mid-April. I'm assuming if you go to a science fiction film festival, like it's all science fiction and all different shapes and sizes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's funny with sci-fi festivals because the the crowd is usually so dedicated. You know, like it's you get you get that sort of in the most endearing way, you get the most nerdy crowd uh, out there. They, they've got a lot of great questions to ask at the Q&As after. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, I, I love, the, I love the, the, the sci-fi film festivals for sure. If audience members asked you a question or come up to you and maybe said something about the film that you possibly hadn't sort of considered before and this sort of like changed your perspective on a particular element of it. Yeah, that's a good question, Tom. There are plenty of people who will come up after the film because... You know, the film itself, while it doesn't explicitly say that it's about dementia, mm-hmm. it really is about Alzheimer's and dementia. And I'll have people coming up after screenings, you know, and being like, oh, my mother was just diagnosed or my father, you know, went through Alzheimer's and, you know, passed away or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they they get it on a different level, I think, than than an average viewer. And, and honestly, you know, there's a lot of people that are affected by um, Alzheimer's and dementia. So, so I think it does sort of connect in that way to the audience. And as far as questions and so forth, I mean, it's funny. I, I think the film, you know, it has an emotional arc, but its ABC kind of plot arc isn't necessarily conventional. Right. Um, and so I think sometimes people are like, oh, what did you, what did you mean exactly? Or is this, was the girl in the film actually the wife, you know, from the future, you know, in the past, you know, right. blah, blah. Yeah. And I totally get that. And, I, and I, I kind of love those interpretations and I think that it's all valid. But, uh, but yeah, there are some pretty interesting theories out there uh, which have been the most fun to listen to after, after the screening. Um, what's your elevator pitch for Here and Beyond? It's essentially about a scientist who gets diagnosed with dementia or a sort of science fiction version of dementia mm-hmm. and attempts to use a time machine to relive his memories. So it's a bit fantastic and he sort of, you know, gets the help of his 
his kind of angsty teenage neighbor along the way. That's the gist of it. So I was just wondering in terms of just the festival circuit, you're going around with your film. Have you set any particular goals working towards getting to sort of like Tribeca or, or Sundance? And I just wondered in terms of your journey, is there a sort of a particular goal or destination you would like uh, here and beyond to end up at? Sundance or Tribeca would be great. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, definitely I've submitted to the bigger festivals yeah. and so forth. No doubt about that. I mean, with every film I make, I, I submit them there and, you know, cross your fingers. As far as the festival circuit, it's sort of about realizing what you make, you know, and I do tend to make sci-fi oriented films. And, you know, while it's not like hard sci-fi, like there's not aliens and planets blowing up and stuff like that, it is it is a form of sci-fi of the mind, I guess. And so yeah. I think, you know, it's about sort of tailoring where your audience is, right? Well, I would love uh, a screening at one of those bigger festivals and I've screened it. Like Cinequest was a big festival mm-hmm. for sure. But that even, even that festival, um, while it is huge, it sort of is slanted towards tech. You know, it takes right. place in Silicon Valley up in San Jose and so it's it's got that sort of built into it and that that audience is sort of looking for that so I mean as far as our festival strategy goes we kind of you know we kind of started with trying to sort of hone in on what festivals might actually you know want to screen us Mm -hmm. and some of these festivals I've screened at before in the past like Otherworlds Austin and Boston sci-fi yeah I've screened before so they kind of knew me and they knew my style and and a lot of festivals you know kind of try to help you along with your career path. So yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was a very tailored journey, but at the right. same time, like, of course, we're submitting to the big ones too and and just sort of seeing what happens. How hard is the festival circuit in terms of like competing against the filmmakers as well? Like how tough is it? It's hard to get into stuff, but at the same time, like things kind of waterfall. So mm. like, for example, when I was at Austin, when I was mm. at, at Otherworlds Austin, I was sitting in the, in the theater it was a packed house. We were watching the, the screening. My film came up and the guy next to me who I'd not met before was like, oh my gosh, Greg Lucy, who was the main act, who was the lead actor in the film. Right. I kind of like looked over at him like, oh, you know, Greg Lucy, not that not that Greg's not a knowable name, but he's sort of a niche actor. And so, you know, after the credits started rolling, you know, I was kind of like, oh, you know, Greg. And and he was like, oh, yeah, I, I do. I, I'm, I'm a programmer at Miami, at Miami right. Science Fiction Festival. He, he's acted in a couple of films that have screened there before. Yeah. And so, you know, he was like, I really loved your film. I would love to put it in our program. And so, right. you know, it's sort of like waterfalls, like I said. So, like, you yeah. know, he wanted to screen it. And now that it just screened at Miami, it's won some awards and gotten some press. And so mm-hmm. people are reaching out. And, and there was a programmer at Miami who was like, I want to screen this in Utah. So it, it all kind right. of yeah. starts to build up into a few you know so when you're applying to these sort of festivals that's one way but then if you get into um one particular festival you might meet somebody else or get you into another into another one so i guess there's different routes into getting into the sort of bigger festivals yes you can get into festivals but mm. you've got to go and that's mm. what really makes the makes the difference um is uh is really being there and, and supporting your film and, and you end up meeting the people that way you know yeah. who end up liking your film talking to you and it goes from there. How have you found the traveling side of things? Because I can imagine that's pretty intense. If you're submitting to six big festivals, like it's kind of like off your own back to get there, um, put yourself up. Yeah, sure. I mean, and it can be a big cost. I mean, like that's all that was all sort of part of the the budget of the right. film itself. Way, And this was a short film. But if you have a feature film in a festival, they'll pay for you to fly out and they'll okay. put you up at a at a hotel because they want you there. That's part of the press of getting more people to show up to the screening, right. having these, you know, filmmakers there in attendance. And so they, they, they really want you there. They want your actors there and everything. So 
it can be it can be a drain for sure but at the yeah. same time it's about building your career and so right. it's a, it is an you know i just wanted to jump into sort of day one question of like how you started your filmmaking journey as far as day one questions goes i mean i i got into film essentially because i was well man i guess i can back up even further it never it didn't start out as film i grew up in a house that was sort of science oriented right in technology my my mom you know worked uh for computer software companies like dell computers and all this and my dad was a math teacher and computer scientist as well. And so mm. it was sort of science and math that kind of took over my, my childhood. As time went on, of course, I, I wound up in the arts somehow. Mm. <laughs> and filmmaking, it's funny, I, when I was you know maybe 14 or something, 15, I tried out for the high school soccer team right. because all my friends were playing soccer and I did not make the team. And so that summer when all my friends were doing their training, mm -hmm. I ended up going to the library and I found this movie called Pi. And this was in the very early 2000s. And so I watched that and I was kind of blown away because it was this sort of mix of, you know, science and art in mm -hmm. this way that I was really taken aback by. And of course, this was sort of the earlier days of the internet at the time Darren Aronofsky had like a personal website and it had like his personal email address on there yeah. and so I this was like right I think right before Requiem for a Dream right. came out and I uh, I emailed him and I was like hey man I, <laughs> I really liked your movie you know like how do you get into making movies like this yeah. seems like a really cool thing and he actually wrote me back oh, and wow. like told me about the process of, of how he made pie on such a low budget and all this sort of stuff and I was hooked, man. I, mm. I ended up writing my first feature screenplay like when I was 17 and mm. started making movies. You know, I wound up in fine arts. I got a fine arts degree in like painting and sculpture and video mm -hmm. art. Yeah. And then kind of circled back around to um, to filmmaking. But yeah, I, I, I sort of credit Darren Aronofsky with that oh, <laughs> in <wow>. a way. <laughs> I think I remember that website. It's called Protozoa, I think. I think that's what it was called. It sure was. And especially like Pi, I mean, that's a very intense movie as well. Like, that's pretty hardcore. Yeah. I mean, didn't you shoot that for like, was it $70,000, I want to say? Like 70 grand, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, pulled some favors and made it happen. I And, and later, you know, I, I found out he was he was shopping around like a more expensive film. I mean, mm. this was like sort of right after her graduate school for him. And he was shopping around this, you know, $5 million movie or something like that. Yeah. Um, and of course, like getting some meetings, but not you know, nobody saying yes. And so I think it was like almost born of, you know, frustration mm. and patience in, a, in sort of the best way possible. But I think you really need that as an independent filmmaker. Like you need, you kind of need to be impatient. That's part of the game almost. Just sort of jumping into your education a little bit, you got an MFA at the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts. And I just wondered, how did that prepare you for life working within the film industry? It prepared me in a creative sense. Mm. I think like as far as the business side goes, I've learned more, you know, sort of on the job than there. But the benefit of a place like USC was being surrounded by all these other students just as eager to make films as me mm -hmm. and just you know like that had that had the drive you know and I think like there's a real support community there I mean I I feel like that's going to be like those those people are now some of my my best friends and 
and colleagues. And, and I feel like uh, it's the community really that that made a difference there. It's sort of coming back around in this way of like, oh, yeah, I did learn a lot there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like at the time, it was a lot of work and, yeah. you know, some frustrations. Involved, but um, mm. the program itself sort of brings people together because people complain about the program. Yeah. Like it's this it's this odd thing where mm. I, I don't know, there's there's like a real a real community that's built around like, oh man, they should do it like this or mm. like man, doesn't it suck that we have to do this? And you know Yeah. It's like the bad guy, but the bad guy doesn't isn't really a person. It's just like this institution. I don't know and I don't mean to say like we're we're fighting it. It was just like um yeah, it was just like uh it brought us together, I guess. I think it also being like a creative, it's natural to fight against some sort of formal way of doing something. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that communal struggle is, I don't know, it's almost like, I mean, I hesitate to compare it to war because it's not at all like war, but it's, you go through something together, I guess, mm. with these people. And so coming out on the other side, it's like, you know, they understand, they sort of get it, mm. you know, and they get where you're coming from and they get what the industry's about. I mean, but like I said, I think it's, you know, the, the school didn't necessarily teach the nuts and bolts of like exactly how to budget and distribute right. your films, mm. get, you know, studio notes and stuff like that. But what they what they really emphasized was story mm. and what is your story versus, you know, how to put it on the page and how to get it up on the screen from there. So. So I guess interning for Matt Reeves production company, was that more about the sort of nuts and bolts of of filmmaking from a sort of big sort of Hollywood perspective. Yeah, interning with Matt Reeves was like uh, a dream come true. I mean, he's <clears throat> one of my idols, an incredible director. He, you know, directed all the Planet of the Apes movies and the, or the newer ones and, mm-hmm. um, you know, Cloverfield and all that. He's doing the next Batman movie, which is really exciting. Just sort of being in the presence. I mean, I was, you know, I was honestly like, you know, I was an intern, so I was really yeah. well on the totem pole. You know, reading all these scripts that were coming mm-hmm. in for Matt to consider uh, yeah. directing or producing and, you know, sort of overhearing phone calls with, you know, his producing partners and all this sort of stuff. It was a really incredible learning experience in that I think one of the biggest things about working for him was it honestly just demystified the whole process. Right. It was like, oh, you know, it's not magic. Like this mm. guy just works really hard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Wow. You know, and like he's got great intuition and mm. you know a great voice and he approaches it like a like an author and and i think that that's like when i when i graduated undergrad i worked as an assistant for ann hamilton who's a a, a fine artist and mm. you know she was having shows at the guggenheim and at the pulitzer yeah. and you know all these these huge institutions and and it was the sort of the same thing with her honestly it was right. like it really came down to dedication and sort of living the art you know and something that i was doing it was just sort of seeing seeing these these masters at work it does it comes down to you know the dedication i guess yeah and i guess like their um their perspective i guess like pov is a very important thing that if they have a very clear and concise point of view of how they're going to approach something yeah that's a really good point i mean they're not followers right they're they're leaders and and they're yeah, they're not. They're speaking their from their own voice, mm. right? They're speaking from their own point of view rather than trying to imitate somebody else's. Um, and I think that that is a huge part of um, it's a huge part of any any artist's sort of career, but I or sort of voice, I yeah. guess. But it's not easy to do, right? At least for me, it's like I'll go see a movie and I'll be like, oh yeah, all my movies should look like that. Yeah, you know, and then I'll 
movie the next day and I'm like, no, 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 wait, I'll, they should all look like that, you know, like, yeah. And I, I think it's about sort of realizing what what is in your core and mm. what you just like. Having watched your um, short films, like the robot series that you directed, to me, like it has a very sort of like clear and distinctive style. I mean, I call them graphic shorts. I mean, they're not right. graphic novels. They don't have the length, but they were um, part of a, oh man, why can't I think of the, like an anthology. Right, they were, okay, they were yeah. Both, but what yeah. was it that particularly sort of spoke to you about those stories and to go to those particular writers and, and option that work from them to be able to make those movies? Yeah, I did. And that was five or something years ago yeah. uh, when I was really working on those that robot series, the last of which might actually be coming out soon. It was supposed to, it was always supposed to be a trilogy and I <laughs> working on the last one now. So so we'll see. Okay. Um, but yeah, I had to uh, get in touch with them. They both both of those authors ended up being like some of the most fantastic people, Joel Pretty and Paul Hornschmeyer. And actually, it's funny, Paul, who at the time when I was getting in touch with him about adapting his comic, he was living in Boston and He's since moved to Los Angeles and lives not far from me. And oh, okay. so we've become like really good friends, actually. Uh, we just met for lunch like two days ago. So, um, yeah, we've, nice. we've kept in touch. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, you know, I definitely had to approach them and, you know, kind of cold email them and just be like, I'm a really big fan mm. and I want to make a movie out of this. And I have no money, and <laughs> but I have passion and I, yeah. you know, and I have an idea. And I think that they really latched onto that. Especially like the long flight of the Ashbot where he's just like floating through space. The other one's great as well about the robot um, going yeah. through the sand dunes and stuff and like counting the grains of sand in his knees. Again, like it's sort of an interesting point of view of, of life that I hadn't really sort of thought about. But it's nice, you know, when people sort of take a sort of bigger picture sort of view of things. I agree, Tom. And I, I was, you know, that, that series was sort of brought about because I was, at the time I was making those, I was working... Uh, at a tech news company, right. and we were doing like stories about like cutting edge technology. You know, refrigerators that could get on Twitter and tweet you when you're we're low on milk or something. Right, and like you know, like uh, robot vacuums and robot mowers and all this sort of stuff. I think I really latched on this idea of like, well, what if the you know these sort of AI you know robots of today end up sort of gaining consciousness? And if a half million years from now, like if the robots were to sort of evolutionarily take over the place of humans, like what would they consider their God to be? Or mm. what would they consider like, you know, their ancestors? Are their ancestors humans, you know? Mm. And what does that mean? And so I guess I was sort of exploring kind of like evolution, you know, sort of origin, evolution and exodus of yeah of the kind of supposed robot species, I suppose. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming in a few millennia. There will, there will, <laughs> right. There will, there will be probably the only things that's left. So was it around the same time you were also directing music videos around the same time you were making these short films as well? Yeah, I was doing music videos. Voice. I think a lot of that sort of time was um, experimentation and that kind of stuff. But Was there ever a question of like, well, actually, no, I'm maybe I'm going to be like a music video director or I'm building towards being a more sort of like narrative or long form um, director? I think the long-term goal has always been, um, you know, directing mm. like feature narratives and TV. But I think that the, I, I love music videos. I love that they're sort of a platform for uh, experience, like it's sort of experimenting with the form itself right. um, or it can be, you know, and I think that it's a great place to sort of test mm. ideas in a certain respect. And you know, you see a lot of like a lot of the my favorite filmmakers, you know, like Spike Jones or mm. Michel Gondry, 
you know, are sort of rooted in music videos and that's sort of where they cut their teeth. You can see a lot of their, you know, a lot of their feature, you know, sort of techniques come from the music videos that they made. And I think there's really something to that. So I, I love music videos. They have a totally different sort of life in that mm. they are a quicker turnaround. And I think a big part of that is you don't have to do sound because it's just the song. And so like that's such a huge part of narrative filmmaking. It really is half of a of a movie is the sound. And so like when you're cutting out that bit, you just focus on the visuals, whether there's a story or not in the music video. But um, I love music videos. I would continue to do them and sort of pitch for them in ways my sort of focus is turning towards uh, these bigger projects. So where did the idea for Here and Beyond come from? It's essentially inspired by my own relationship with my grandfather, Lyle. He had spent the last 30 years or so of his life taking care of my grandmother, suffered from Parkinson's disease. Pretty soon after she passed away in like 2012, his sort of signs of memory loss became more and more apparent. And eventually he was also diagnosed with dementia. Mm -hmm. So he passed away just a few months ago, actually. And um, the story is sort of meant to be a kind of I guess sort of subjective look at what it might have been like to have been sort of in his shoes in his later years. Right. So how long did it take you from the idea bouncing around in your head to sort of script? It's funny. So I, I co-wrote this film with, with a frequent co-writer and friend of mine, Corey Allmiller, who's a really talented director in itself and is on his own. We went through so many, dra- so many drafts of this, Tom, like so many different versions of what this could be. Um, and it was sort of about like honing in on really how far we wanted to push this time traveling conceit. In the end, we we probably spent about three months writing the script. I mean, the script was yeah. probably 15 pages or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it definitely had some, some pretty wide-ranging variants throughout. And uh, let's see, so we kind of started writing it in maybe October of 2018. And uh, we were shooting in January. We shot at the end of January. Pre-pro was pretty tight. Yeah. So we had some amazing producers. Like my producers, um, Mike Downing and Nick Benjamin and Quinn Armstrong were killing it and really put the thing together quickly Yeah. Uh, once we settled on the script. Uh, so we shot it in January. And then our post-process, we were done, completely done with the film by uh, May 1st. It was a pretty tight turnaround. I yeah. mean... We were all working hard, but um, but uh, but yeah, we made it. The question about the um, house that you used and the amount of stuff that was in there, did you go to somebody who was a hoarder and just say, listen, can we come <laughs> and shoot in your house? Or Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we, we definitely went to a, a hoarder's house. She was incredible. Her name is Julie Gentleman. She <laughs> she was like the best person ever. We, we, we were one of the first places to ever shoot at her house. Oh, we went through this website. I think it was called Peerspace. Yeah. Um, or maybe it was Geekster. I'm pretty sure we went through Peerspace to get that place. And we were one of the first teams. There was one other uh, film that had shot there previously and she had a really great time with them. But yeah, she, she, I mean, it's funny. It's like she was a hoarder, but only in her garage, really? you know, like it's <laughs> like crazy and like that's like literally like the whole reason we got that look like we wanted that location was because of that garage it was sort of perfect for us and we actually had to take a bunch of stuff out in order wow. to like walk in there you know so yeah we moved a bunch of stuff to the backyard for the few days and like covered it with a tarp and then replaced it with our time machine thing mm. <laughs> 
So well, that's yeah, amazing. A lot it seems organic because you know there's some things where people have this sort of hoarding scenarios, and you look at it and you go, like, mm, I don't know really about that. But this one, I was looking at, right. you know, that looks looks legit to me. It was. So, what was your toughest um, scene to shoot? We had a scene that was supposed to take place outdoors, and it was kind of like the the most emotional crux sort of dialogue scene between mm. the teenage girl and the older man. <laughs> it was so unbelievably windy the day that we tried to shoot that scene. I mean, to the point where like the sound guy was just like, dude, we can't. It, all right. Like all we're hearing in the headphones is just like wind, you know, just like, <sighs> I mean, we had like every yeah. single like dampening thing on that mic and it, it didn't work. So we had to bring the scene inside, which means we kind of had to rewrite it a little bit in terms of like why it would take place inside. Mm. Um, so we were kind of nervous about it. I was kind of nervous about it. You know, we ended up shooting it indoors. And to be honest, like when we got into post-production, yeah. my editor, Alejandro Marquez Vela, who is unreal talented um, and a director in his own in his own right, too, like an incredible director. He had this great idea of cross-cutting the scene uh, that we shot that was supposed to be shot outside right. that we shot inside with the next scene that took place in the same room in the house. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up doing that. It was like everything came together. It was like, oh my God, yeah, like this is what it was supposed to be the whole time. You yeah. know? So it's sort of like a, this curse of wind that ended up actually being like a huge blessing in disguise. So That's the art, isn't it? It's the adaptation. Oh, exactly. And then, you know, <laughs> great things come from that. How did you go about casting the movie and how did you pick the particular actors for this story? I think casting is, is such a huge part of it of any movie, it shouldn't be overlooked. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. sort of taking the time and cast to find the right people. And I think with this film, we really did. I mean, Greg, so Greg Lucy, who plays the lead, he, I've worked with him like many times in the past. He was one of the very first people I met after moving to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was working on a set and he was the lead actor of this uh, film that I was working on. It was like literally like the first day and it was just maybe like within the week that I'd moved to LA yeah. and I was like kind of struck a conversation with him and we really hit it off. And, you know, like a year later I was like, will you be in a movie of mine? You know? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and he was like, yeah, totally. You know, and, and we put it together. And since then he's, he's acted in a few of my shorts and yeah. music videos and stuff like that. And, and so I, we kind of the role for him. I mean, mm. he was the guy, you know what I mean? It was yeah. like, this is, this is the person who's going to play this part. And so as, in our writing process, we really tailored it to him and, and he has since sort of said that like it felt like one of the most personal roles to him oh, as nice. far as like lines up with him his own personality and more than these other projects you know so that was really nice to hear and yeah. then um, Laurel Porter who plays the teenage girl she we auditioned a bunch of uh, teenagers for this role <laughs> you know it was funny it was like I knew sort of the qualities that I was after mm. sort of wasn't until later that I realized that like. I was looking for qualities that I had right. when I was, yeah. And so, yeah, like, yeah. she came, and I remember she just like sort of knocked it out of the park, like with her sort of naturalism. But she was also had this like a bit of an edge to her mm. in terms of like she would speak up for herself and she would, you know, kind of get things done, mm. you know. And it was it was uh, it was nice. Like she really had an opinion, which right. I think I was drawn to with her. Uh, so I was like, yep. You're it, you know? Yeah. And then Christine Kellogg-Darren, who plays Ruth, the the sort of the other, or the wife of the main character, the deceased wife, I should say. She was just like, I, I'm like still blown away by her. She, uh, she has a small role in the film, 
but I think one of the most sort of powerful. Mm. Even on set, she was sort of like bringing the crew to tears, you know. Yeah. And it's such a small moment in, during the sort of climax of the film. Mm. But um, she was uh, she was sort of a no-brainer. I mean, she came in during a casting session and said her few lines, and yeah, yeah, she was she was the one. Um, and I've since cast her in a couple things as well. So oh, nice. it all it all comes around. I mean, one of the things that sort of struck me about this sort of like thematic element of the movie is the idea that uh, Max says that time just keeps on moving forward and forward and forward. But then you've got this sort of counterpoint, the idea of that he's, he's losing his um, his memory. And it kind of struck me the fact that he was, in a way, going back in time. Yeah, definitely. And again, like, I think part of it was trying to um, thread together a narrative that was emotionally arced rather than necessarily like plot driven. And so I think it's interpretive in that regard. And like, is he going back in time or is it a memory loss thing or, you know what I mean? And I kind of like, I mean, I think that's sort of where the sci-fi thing comes into play because this sort of condition that Mac gets diagnosed with early on in the film, Mm. it isn't, I mean, it, it isn't really dementia. It's not Alzheimer's. I mean, it's mm. it's sort of a condition that's meant to kind of elicit the same feelings, but yeah. in a kind of genre-specific way. And I guess I made that choice because it was like trying to keep the film subjective to right. him. Like, yeah. he's, he's a scientist, you know, and like this disease is like incredibly alien. It's like it's mm. not grounded in reality. And so it kind of goes against everything his own logical brain is telling him about the, how the world should work, you know? Mm. Yeah, it was a it was a tricky it was a tricky thing dealing with time travel. Yeah. Um, it always is, is you know, and you, and you don't kind of like you don't kind of want to overdo the twist and the rules, and you know, there's a lot that you kind of have to yeah. deal with. So I think the only factually accurate time travel I'm probably getting this wrong was like Primer when they literally said like if you break that down that that could happen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love Primer. Oh, it's amazing. It's yeah, amazing. yeah, it's got a little bit of that quality. I mean, honestly, like the the time machine itself. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you bring up Primer, too, because um, Primer was a huge influence growing up, too. I mean, that was another one of those movies that I'd rented that summer and was blown away by. It was just like, oh, my God, like, what is, you know, like, you don't see movies like this in the theater, you know, like, Mm. this isn't the Disney movies I was used to or whatever. But, yeah, I think that as far as, like, the time machine aspect goes, too, like, we were, we really, my production designer, Chris Miller, and I, we ended up going to a aeronautics supply company. Oh, okay. um, And it's big warehouse in in the valley and they just had like i mean the place was a just a complete mess it's huge it's just Mm. such a mess of old pieces and parts of rocketry stuff from you know like the 60s until now a lot of it's rusty and just thrown in the corners i mean this place is like huge and i'm sure that we all have like some kind of weird mercury poisoning from being in that <laughs> probably yeah or some sort of it's been irradiated of some kind yeah right right exactly but like you know we kind of came across this chemical shower that they had like in the back that had been like rusting in their parking lot for who knows how long mm. and we were like oh maybe that's the time machine and i remember sort of coming across the idea that like well maybe the time machine is like a it's sort of like a coffin mm. you know and we turn the chemical shower on its back and it becomes like this you know, because it really is yeah. about him moving on and passing mm. away. And so, you know, maybe it's a coffin. And so then once we had that idea, we sort of, we kind of flew with it, you know, yeah. and like it all came, came about in that regard. So, 
Is there like a feature film? Um, is there one that you're sort of like developing alongside this? There is a feature film written and I've been pitching around right now. And yeah, I mean this, you know, the short kind of just premiered in, in December. And so yeah. it's been getting hype. And so I've been getting some meetings and yeah, a few companies that are interested in the in the feature version. Um, I kind of can't say too much, I suppose, but yeah, yeah uh, I understand. But fingers crossed, fingers crossed. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it had that kind of goal in mind as well, but yeah. I have, uh, was kind of exhibiting like what the tone of this feature might be and, mm. and all that and who these characters might, who they might embody. So, so yeah, the feature is, it's in the works, Tom. <laughs> great. Obviously the actors in the, in the film are great, but then you think, oh, this is, could be like, like a terrific vehicle for, I don't know. I mean, I just saw um, Robert Redford's last movie. I mean, it's his last movie, but in terms of that sort of like reference to his career as an actor, and I guess like this is a perfect thing again, like if this guy's going through his life and memories, that could be a perfect sort of platform for that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot of opportunities, you know, like the, the, the feature film version Mm. is a bit bigger. Like it's, Mm. it's about an entire family rather than just sort of two people and so it sort of broadens the world in a lot of ways yeah. and uh, in my opinion I think there's some great opportunities for actors with these parts so yeah. um so yeah we're sort of piecing it together as we speak so I just want to jump into your uh, work as a producer so I know you recently produced a film called survival skills starring Stacey Keach what's it like working with a film legend and somebody with such a powerful screen presence oh uh, he's the best it was incredible I mean speaking of presence I mean you think he's got a presence on the screen mm. you should be there on the set to just wow. sort of experience the power of that man i mean he just sort of commands commands a room it was uh yeah survival skills was a great process uh directed by quinn armstrong collaborator of mine um is incredibly talented and i'm so excited for the film uh to be coming out this year yeah so yeah we're, we're pushing it out right now to some festivals and uh got our fingers crossed on that but yeah it's uh that, that was a great a great process and I learned a ton even just from Quinn who's yeah. an incredible director really took the helm I mean speaking of of vision that man's really got really got a voice so I'm excited to see public reaction to that film because I really think it's incredibly unique and I think it's got it's got something to say that's really important it's based on like a police training video that goes wrong <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally yeah it's a bit metatextual in that regard right. it, it, it's sort of Starts as a, you know, really upbeat kind of meet Jim. He's a police officer who's, you know, got his yeah. first day on the job and all this stuff. And the narrator of the film is Stacy Keach. Right. And in a kind of stranger than fiction way, like okay, he, yeah, yeah. like the, the narrator ends up kind of starting to try to take over his life and this kind of stuff. Um, what sort of starts as kind of an upbeat comedy kind of turns into a dark comedy and then finally sort of winds up just purely dark. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty it's a pretty fantastic, interesting journey. So I just wanted to get your hot take as a filmmaker. The Apple has just announced it's launching its own streaming service. Disney yes. is not far behind with uh, with yes. their streaming service. So there is an ever-growing platform for content. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the industry is very much in a flux right now, more than I think it's it's ever been with this digital age and streaming platforms. And these sort of big studios trying to figure out where they fit into the world of all of this. And I don't exactly know where it's going to go. I mean, my, my hunch... I mean, I think as far as digital plat- like these streaming platforms go, it's a great opportunity, right? It's like mm. they're creating more content than ever before. So the opportunities for creative people like myself are bigger and more wide-ranging than before. Mm. The problem is the audiences are so fragmented. And I don't know. I mean, I think it's like the best stuff will just rise to the top of the pile. I don't think that recognition for 
great films will go away mm. and blockbusters I think will always exist uh, in one form or another but it is different I mean I I think about it a lot I it's funny I live <laughs> like my house in Los Angeles is right between the new Netflix tower on some <laughs> part of it yeah Paramount Paramount right. Pictures which is like right like a block away behind me and so yeah. I'm kind of smushed between like the old and the new right mm. now which is uh, kind of been an interesting experience to watch but uh, I, I had there's so many pros and cons about it I mean honestly it's like it's great there's more stuff out there but there's fewer eyeballs who are able mm. to watch it and yeah. um, I don't know it's kind of messy right now I think but but we'll see how it all evens out in the next few years with these with the bigger companies stepping stepping into the streaming world. And this is going to go back to like sort of like cable packages. Somebody's going to go, right, well, you can get a flat fee and you can get all this sort of stuff. So I think maybe it will kind of go back in a way. I guess I kind of agree, Tom. I mean, you know, they always say like the, the movie industry is the music industry just mm. 10 years behind. Yeah. You know, and I think that like honestly, like I think one big thing about the music industry, which was so fractured when, oh my gosh, why can't I think of the... The crazy downloading. What Napster? Napster, yes. Yeah. I kept thinking Netflix. I'm like, no, but they run. Yes. Um, uh, yes, Napster came along. You know, like I, mm. I think that honestly, like I think a, a kind of version of Spotify mm. might happen for the movie industry, yeah. where you know you can watch Netflix movies next to Amazon movies, or you know what I mean. But it's. Yeah feels like that's what the consumer wants i i know i want that i want that sort of like simplicity of like one subscription gives me access to the entire library so i just want to do sort of wrap up with you um, and ask you what your uh, dream project was if time and money wasn't an option oh sorry it wasn't not it wasn't an option wasn't an object i should say <laughs> <laughs> man that's a really good question i um you know it's funny i think my sort of like big dream project for down the road would to mm. be would be to do the um what i think is probably an inevitable live action adaptation of the iron giant right uh, nice that movie just sort of continued to speaks volumes about sort of like societies mm. i don't know apprehensive with things or apprehension about things that are different or new and uh sort of has a has a has a great life to it so i don't know that's i mean that's kind of one of those big dream projects of course i have to talk to brad bird first uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh yeah. i wouldn't mind that um but yeah i mean that's that's one of the bigger ones but to be honest like i'm really excited about um doing the feature adaptation of this this yeah. film and even though the scale is small you know it is a first mm. feature so the budget's not huge that's what i've been wanting to make for a very long time now mm -hmm. so so it's exciting so there you have it I had a great time chatting with Colin and please do like and subscribe to the show on SoundCloud and YouTube and drop a comment or two. And you can get in touch with me at the Salmoning01 on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Tom and I'll catch up with you next episode.